Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Duke Football Coverage Podcast brought to you by Bull City Coordinators. You can follow us on Twitter at DukeFBCoverage, and you can listen to us almost anywhere that you find your podcast, although we're not yet on Apple, but give it time. Uh, we're on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, and on Anchor. Uh, and if you have any questions or any suggestions, or if anybody out there who is listening is a former coach, player, uh, somebody connected with the program in any way, give us an email, uh, shoot us a line at bullcitycoordinators at gmail.com. Now for our next guest here on the program, very excited about this one. Uh, for those of you who remember the mid to late 90s, where we're going back to today, we have number 44 of the linebacker core uh, who started uh a great tradition of players wearing that number. Of course, we all remember Joe Giles Harris, who was no doubt inspired by our next guest and his choice to wear that number. Uh, we have Ryan Stallmeyer on the program today. Thank you for coming on, sir. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. Well, uh, as I mentioned to you right before we got started, I'm just going to begin with what are you doing now because I did a lot of internet research on you and could not find a whole lot, so kudos to you for keeping your profile on the DL. Uh, the closest thing I could find to a picture of you was an autograph uh, for sale on eBay and a picture of a Clemson player sacking one of your former quarterbacks. So uh, whatever you've done to scrub, scrub your presence off, good job. Tell us what you're up to now. Yeah, that's a good thing I'm not on the internet uh, these days, for sure. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, you know, maybe a couple things about me, sort of personally as well as professionally. So personally, uh, I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, that's, where we're, that's where I was born and raised. I'm sure we can chat about that in a little bit. But I'm sort of here just, just outside of Cincinnati, um, married to my high school sweetheart, Heather. Uh, she was with me, you know, as I was at Duke, and uh, fortunately she stayed with me. And uh, we're here in Cincinnati. We've got two kids. We've got a uh, 16-year-old daughter, Ava. Uh, she's a junior in high school. And then we have a 14-year-old son, Max. He's a uh, freshman in high school. He's actually going to my alma mater, Elder High School. Uh, professionally, I work for Fidelity Investments. I, when I graduated from Duke, I started at Fidelity sort of on a whim. I had a brother-in-law who worked there. And here we are, what, 21 years later, I'm still there. So I'm a... Uh, financial advisor for some of our top corporate clients and their executives. Uh, so I work from home and, uh, I enjoy it. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's me. Well, uh, I want to make sure I heard you correctly. You said you have an older daughter named Ava and then a younger son named Max. Is that correct? That's it. Yeah. Ava's 16 and Max is 14. Okay. And a little, uh, bit of weirdness, uh, our oldest child, his name is Mac and our, uh, our youngest child, our daughter's name is Ada. So a uh, uh, little, little yeah. bit in reverse there. <laughs> kind of uh, interesting. Well, one, one, or two, one or two letters. We have the same names, yeah. Exactly. That's kind of neat. That's kind of neat. Well, I thought I had seen that you were with Fidelity on the Internet. But I was not sure about that. So my son, Mac, uh, he is a big, uh, big into stocks, investments, those sorts of things. He's 12. So he gave me a couple of questions that he wants me to ask you. Why did you end up going into finance? How did you end up at Fidelity? Yeah, great question. So when I graduated, I was a public policy major at Duke, sort of aspiring and thinking I would, you know, take what was a natural path from that degree, which is law school, and actually sat down with the dean of the law school here at a local college and you know, for some reason, I just really wasn't into it. So from that point, I was like, oh, boy, what am I going to do now? Um, my football career had sort of winded to a, to a stop. And uh, it was really my brother-in-law, right? So my wife's oldest sister uh, at the time, I think they were probably just getting married. He worked at Fidelity uh, as a financial advisor in Chicago. So I obviously knew him and got to know a lot of his friends. And uh, that's really what kind of springboarded me to to think about the career. Um, you know how it is when you start a job, you, you sort of think, hey, if I can just kind of last five years uh, so that I'm fully invested in my 401k, that would be a big win. Those are the sort of things you think about when you're in your young 20s. <laughs> and, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's just a great company, right? It's a big, large, diversified financial services company. 
And uh, even though I've been at the same company for 21 years, I've probably done four or five different jobs, different jobs. So it allows you to kind of bounce around and, you know, do some different things. Um, so that's, that's it. I love my job. I love to help people. I get to talk to people about sort of what's going on in their lives every day and try to help them solve their problems. And yeah, it's just, uh, you know, I feel fortunate to have found fidelity and, uh, that's, that's why I've stuck, I've stuck it out the way I have. Well, let's transition a little bit out of uh, the financial end of things. I'm just curious, uh, what was the transition out of football for you like? I mean, what? How is it when you go from playing on a on a big stage in the ACC against top programs to you know starting your the rest of your life and your your normal real world career? What was that like for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think probably a lot of athletes and people that are sort of identified um, in a certain way um, would acknowledge that there's, there is that transition, right, whether it's sports or something else. Um, for me personally, you know, it probably took about six, six months, give or take, right? I mean, when I graduated, um, I don't necessarily think I was completely ready for it to be all done. Um, I did, I did sign with an agent. I did work out. I did, you know, um, do the on campus, um, sort of workouts at Duke. I didn't, I didn't get invited to the, to the, um, to Indianapolis. So, you know, so I, I kind of went through that spiel. Didn't get invited to any, uh, free, any camps as a free agent, which I knew was probably my path, you know, uh, if, if anything. And then at that point, you know, like my agent's like, well, we can look at Canada or we can do some other things like that. And, and you know, again, that's, that, that, that's all probably from graduation to where I'm discussing right now is a probably four to six month kind of stint. And I, I think at that point, it's like, you know what, I'm done. Uh, it's been great. You know, I need to move on. I need to get a job. That's just sort of how, you know, how I was, how I was uh, raised. Uh, it was time to sort of make my own keep, and uh, yeah. So you know, but I can appreciate the fact that you know it is a little awkward. You know, you sort of be identified as, hey, you're kind of the big bulky football player. You've been playing football since you were a toddler. Um, it, it, it can be uh, sort of trying for some to, to sort of make that transition uh, initially. Um, and then over time, right, it just it becomes less and less of sort of how you think about yourself. But, uh, yeah, that, that's sort of my, my thoughts on that. Tell us a little bit uh, about your background, how you got into football. You said you were uh, from Cincinnati and you're back there now. What what got you into football? Yeah, so, you know, if you're not familiar with this part of the country, it's a football hotbed. Um, it's, it's something, you, you know, you got little guys out there, at, you know, five or six years old with full pads on playing tackle football around here. Um, so it's just what you do, you know. Uh, where I went to high school, if you've ever get a chance to, to come through Cincinnati and you got a free Friday night, I'd encourage you to check out a high school football game in Cincinnati. It's it's pretty special. Uh, the conference that I played in, Cincinnati Elmer, if you're familiar, uh, Moore High School, St. Xavier, um, LaSalle, I mean, these are sort of perennial powerhouses, uh, year in and year out. Um, so it's just what you do around here. Um, so I started playing, you know, in grade school football. I think my mom let me, I did a couple of years of soccer, like most do. I think I put pads on, geez, I think I was in fourth grade. Um, I was a little bigger for my age, so I played with the fifth and sixth graders, um, Played, you know, seventh grade was my last year of grade. So they had weight limits, wasn't able to make a weight league grade, um, and then went over to Elder. My brother, who's four, who's four grades older than me, uh, he was an Elder, and he was obviously an incredible football player. So if you're familiar with the area, Cincinnati Elder, they have, a, they have an old concrete, probably fits eight to 10,000 people stadium sort of set in kind of like a sort of city city urban area and uh i think it actually is named you know top 10 places to see a high school football game in the country uh so that's where i went um so it's just what you do around here and uh, it's a great program they uh they they they, they develop great players i mean there's several 
several older players that are still playing the league right now. Uh, Kyle Rudolph is probably a name you recognize. He, he was a great one at Elder. Um, so that's 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 what you do around here. You play football, talk football. So you know that's that's kind of how I got into the game. What uh, what took you to Duke? How'd you end up there? Yeah, good question. Um, so my brother was fourth grade total I was. Um, he was the second ranked defensive lineman in the state of Ohio uh, in high school, and uh, his five visits were Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Illinois, because we have family in Illinois, and Duke University. Um, I can vividly remember. So he was a senior; I was in eighth grade. Um, when he finally said he was going to go to Duke, for all I knew, Duke was in New Jersey. I didn't even know what state it was in. Uh, uh, um, uh. Yeah, and people around here are like, it's changed, right? Over 25 years, it's changed. It's more kids are going everywhere. I mean, I think, I think you know, the, the, the SEC has a lot to do with that in terms of, but, but around here, it's still, right? I mean, football is the big time. So for someone to say, from Cincinnati with the schools that I just mentioned that they were going to go play football at Duke University. Kind of people sort of, I don't want to say they shame it, but they're like, really? They, they didn't have a football team? Um, a lot of people around the country probably still say that. But at any rate, so I kind of went into Elder. He's down at Duke. And obviously, you know, I would travel down there when I could with my, with my parents uh, to watch him play. And, just, you know, sort of started, started to appreciate you know, what it provided in terms of a, a great blend of both academics and athletics. And then really sort of the final the final thing was, if you can remember, 1994, right? So in 1994, Brett Goldsmith was named Coach of the Year. Uh, they had an incredible run, lost to Wisconsin. At that time, I think they called it the Hall of Fame goal. It's probably changed several times over since then. Uh, but they had a great team, right? Spence Fisher was the quarterback. Randy Baldwin, Randy Baldwin maybe was the running back. Might be off by, by that a little bit. Um, that was my senior year in high school when I was deciding where to go. So for me, it was it was it was probably down to like UVA, Illinois, Northwestern, and Duke, and I really couldn't make a decision. Um, had a hard time making a decision. Finally, finally settled on Duke, and uh, a lot of that probably had to do with things I just mentioned in terms of. The, the current success they were having and, and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, I mean, for, for one semester, I overlapped with my brother, right? So my brother's fifth year uh, was my freshman year. So we actually got to be on a football field together for, for one year, which is sort of funny because uh, that first year I traveled, uh, I never played, so I was able to maintain my, my, um, my red shirt. But I would actually, so they would want me on the defensive field just to kind of keep up with, you know, the schemes in case I were going to have to go in if someone were to get injured, which meant I usually put, you know, a beanie on and I played fullback and my brother's a nose guard. So on track plays and different things like that, I actually bumped in my brother once or twice, which I've never done before, which was, which was funny. I still laugh about that. But, uh, yeah, long, long-winded answer, but that's the sure how I ended up with you. So your brother, if I'm correct, that's Mike Stallmeyer, right? Yeah, correct. Now, uh, you mentioned Robert Baldwin. He was the running back that year. He had a decent year, 276 carries, 1,187 yards. You know, decent. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah he, was, he was lights out. Man. He was, I don't know. There was a couple of games where I think he might have the single, single game rushing record, right? He had like two, 300 yards in a game or two. Yeah, he, he had a good year that year. Spence Fisher had a good year, but as was the curse of Duke quarterbacks for a long time in the bowl game through uh, a number of interceptions. And I don't know I don't know why that is, but that just seemed to always happen to, to Duke quarterbacks in bowl games for a good while. It was really good. Uh, they were a pretty good team. They got matched up against. How do you remember that? That line was really good, that Wisconsin oh, line. I felt bad for my brother because I think their center, you know, Wisconsin football, right? I mean, they're just – really really strong in, in the interior i think their offensive center was like the number one rated center in the country like he was i don't know he probably ended up playing the league for 10 years for all i know but he was uh, it was a tough matchup for, for a mike and barry alvarez was the coach of wisconsin then and coaching against him in a bowl game is never good uh he it was always yeah. very very good when you gave him extra time to prepare so 
Uh, that was yeah. a tough matchup. I went down actually with my parents and my aunt and uncle, and I mean, big time football, right? I mean, they, they, they came out in thousands, you know, I mean, it was just like took over the city. And everybody to look. There was just tailgating of Wisconsin fans, you know, the whole beer and cheese thing. And then you got the little tiny crowd of Dukies, uh, you know, and they were kind of wine and cheese, high and tense. Uh, that was that was good good memories. Yeah, and if I remember that game correctly, what really turned the tide in that was in the second half, Wisconsin just starts handing the ball off pretty much on every play. And that line just eventually wore down uh, the Blue Devils. But – uh, yeah, I mean that was just a, that was a really good, like you said, that was a really good Wisconsin team, and that was a tough matchup for anybody. So yeah, that was a great goal. I mean, that, that was a, I think Duke started off that year. I feel like they might have been undefeated for a bit, and then I think they had a couple losses late, but they still got that 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 goal bit. I mean, that was uh, that wasn't a New Year's Day goal, but it was a pretty big goal back then. It wasn't, there wasn't the, the, the hundreds of them that there are now. So when was Mike at Duke and who recruited him there? And then tell us the years you were at Duke and who recruited you to come to Durham. Yeah, so Mike's a 91 undergrad. Um, so he was, you know, at Duke, but from like 91 to 95 or something like that, 91 to 94, I guess. Um, i trying to think who recruited him. Um, who to the house? What? Trying to think of who had this territory at that time. Well, you know, actually, no, it wasn't him. It was Cecil um, Pete. I can't think of the gentleman's name. Uh, he was a defensive coach, um, super nice guy. If you if you had any of the names handy, I could probably recognize it, but it wasn't uh, the name that escapes me. Well, Wilson uh, was the head coach then, correct? Yeah, yeah, he was. And I think his brother might have been the defensive coordinator at some point. Uh, but that's getting into my bad memory because uh, I was, I think, nine, uh, maybe. Yeah, Eddie Wilson was the. Who knows? Yeah, it looks like Eddie Wilson was the offensive coordinator and Dale Stram was the defensive coordinator. Dale Stram, that, you know, I feel like it might have been him, but I could be wrong. Okay. Um, but at any rate, so Mike was a 91 grad at Elmer. I was a 95 grad at Elmer. So, you know, I always joke for an entire decade, my parents made the drive from Cincinnati to Durham to watch <laughs> football. Uh, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, a long, long string of Stolmeyers playing down there. Well, so uh, when did you come to Duke and who uh, recruited you in? Yeah, so I was, I was uh, you know, I graduated over 95, right? So I was at Duke. What you know, figure like ninety five to ninety nine, December of ninety nine, I guess. Um, came up to, to the house. I mean, obviously Fred came up a couple times. I remember him dropping in on our Elder High School bank football banquet. He kind of surprised me there. Um, trying to close the deal. That's Fred um, Goldsmith for the listeners out there, right? Yeah, exactly. Sorry, Fred Goldsmith. Um, he had this. He had this, this. This piece of dirt back then. Oh, geez. I don't know if it was Coach Mack or not. I don't think it was. Well, so, so when you come in to, to Durham, what are your expectations? What are you looking to accomplish? You know, I, I don't necessarily know if I had, like, big expectations in terms of field play out of the gate, right? I was just trying to, like, not – not to be too homesick and not want to not want to go home to my girlfriend uh, and try not to fail out. Um, you know, that was probably what I was thinking my first semester there. Um, I'm pretty good, you know. So then it just you know from there, I mean, just kind of figure it out as a young kid, and I don't necessarily know if as an 18 year old at least back then. Probably kids are kids are a little more uh, do that a little bit more than these days. If I had like a five year plan, sort of what my goals were going to be. That's probably shame on me. Um, just work hard, you know, and do the right things. And typically, the things will work out the best. And they they, they did. You know, I had, a, I had a decent decent run um, in terms of on the field and in the classroom. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I approached it. Well, you and uh, 
Todd DeLamelier were some big hitters at Duke. You guys had some talent. Scotty Montgomery, Richmond Flowers, Chris Combs. Yep. Combs. There were some uh, – you had Ben Watson there for your uh, last season. You had some guys who could play. Billy Granville was there maybe right at the end of your time uh, at Duke. You mentioned – yeah, yeah, you guys had some talent. Uh, there were, you know, turnover in the coaching staff, and things weren't always coming together. Uh, maybe in the win loss record, and college football was changing a lot back then, right? It was going from small regional conferences to the kind of the big business that we see of it today. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the biggest challenge that you guys faced as a program when you were at Duke. Yeah, it's tough, right? I mean, football is, you got 85 kids, and to compete at that level, it's not, it's different than if um, fielding a team of 10 to 15 kids. So it takes a lot to be successful, and therefore, it takes a lot to, to turn the corner and stay around that corner. You know, the, the biggest thing I saw at Duke, and we were pretty proud of our class, right? You named a few. You've got, you could add that list to Lenny Friedman, who was a second-round pick for the Denver Broncos. Uh, we had some other pretty good players that came in that class. I remember we're coming off a pretty good year at Duke had. So we always felt like, and then on the, I'm speaking mostly on the defensive side at this point, we always felt like we could compete with most teams problem you realize pretty quickly is when you're playing the Florida States of the world at that time, they're running three deep, you know? So you're you're out there playing maybe 100 snaps in a game, and that's what our defense would play, 100 snaps in a game. I remember our last game against Carolina, we played, I think I had 55 snaps in the first half, which, you know, a top 10 Division One football team isn't going to have a uh, defensive side, isn't going to have 50 snaps in the entire game. So what ends up happening is, you know, you're playing four or six in the world, and they're running three, three deep on their receivers. And the only difference between the third receiver and the first receiver is the first, the third one is a freshman five-star American, but he's a freshman. So what ends up happening, and you alluded to, to it playing Wisconsin, is you get worn down, you know? Like, for me, you know, that, that the old eye in the sky and film, it, it, it was, by the end of the fourth quarter, it's kind of embarrassing to watch because you can't get in stance. Um, I mean, you're that spent. So the challenge with programs, you know, I don't know enough about the program today, but the challenge for our program, um, you just don't have it. You don't have it You know, your, your, first, your first 22 can probably, can probably keep up and compete. The challenge is the second. You got to have solid second strings. In some cases, even have third. Uh, and 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 we just didn't have that, right? So we just couldn't keep up. I mean, there were more things than that, but that's the one that stands out to me. Why do you think that was? What was it, what was it about Duke? Maybe the programs, the expenditures, the commitment to football that made that difficult. Yeah, I think you just mentioned a few, right? Yeah, I mean, it was back then. It was. Um, how, how, how committed really are we to, to putting a, a great product out there? Um, today they are, I think. Um, I know they are. But, you know, you sort of have that element. And uh, I would also speak to what I was saying in the beginning. It's, uh, it's a lot to put together a squad of 85 scholarship players. Uh, that, 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 it takes a lot more to move uh, to move a uh, uh, to move a large barge or large ship versus a small, tiny, tiny boat that only has five to 15 players, right? It, it takes a lot to move the momentum of that. Um, so those things are happening. You know, on top of that, and this is nothing to be ashamed of, something actually to be proud of, is the academic standards at Duke, right? So when I was there, you know, you have, you know, the ACT and the SAT as kind of those, 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 those different tests that are out there to help you get into school or get you into certain schools. And, you know, there's, there's NCAA minimum standards. A lot of the people that we're competing against, as long as you get that NCAA minimum standard, we're good. You got a green light. 
not the uh, university will gladly accept you to play sports there. That's not the case at Duke, right? I mean, they, again, when I was there, it could be different. Uh, sliding scale, right? So if I've got 20 scholarships to get out, uh, I might be able to take five of those kids that hit those minimum NCAA standards. But then the university is going to tell me, as an athletic organization, that uh, the next five have to be at this benchmark, which is higher than that minimum. The next five have to be above that benchmark. So that, that inherently puts you at a slightly disadvantage. Not a slightly, it puts you at a disadvantage uh, when you're competing against schools that don't have to do that. So, I mean, there's a number of factors, right? Those are just a few, again, off the hip that, that come to mind. One thing that came up when I interviewed Ben Erdeljack, uh, who was another good player that overlapped with you, uh, he and I kind of talked about how maybe the administration didn't appreciate the sea change that was occurring in college athletics at the time and maybe the businessification of it. And they still had an idea that if you just hire the right coach like you'd done with Spurrier, everything will be fine. And really, structurally, there was a lot more that needed to be done at that point. I'm just curious kind of what your thoughts are on what the athletic department's role in some of the problems that happened more after you left, what their role in that is, and if they really appreciated what was going on with college football at the time. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's a good question. It's a good conversation. Um I don't know too much about sort of what happened after me, obviously, but but I, I would just parallel it to running a business. You know, if I'm running a business, I can do the sort of lowest possible uh, to keep my business uh, above water and afloat, or I can really invest back in my business to try to grow and become a leader and gain market share. Uh, Etc. Right. So perhaps uh, as a university, consider what was important to them with certain athletic programs. Hey, let's just keep this thing afloat. You know, let's let's we got a budget of X to pay our head coach and assistants. We understand that that budget is X minus twenty five to thirty percent of what our competitors are paying, but we're okay with that because we're just trying to like we're just trying to stay afloat. We don't necessarily want to pay uh, market share or market share plus to try to get this 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 thing changed. So, I mean, that's sort of how I view it. Um, it was just that wasn't a priority, perhaps, or a big priority um, for for those 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 people at the university that were were managing their budget. Um, I think that's changed a bit, right? I, you know, I hope it. You know, they've got some great-looking facilities down there, and they've got great coaches. And, again, I'm not completely in the loop of what's happening. Um, so I think that's one big element of it. Um, and then I would go back to, you know, the, the academic standards that, come, that a school like Duke University has versus the, the other, some of, not all, some of the other schools that you're competing against in your conference. It's different, you know. So you're at a disadvantage. Well, since you mentioned the uh – coaching pay, I want to turn back to the coaches that you had at Duke. I know that when Goldsmith was dismissed, and we can talk about whether that, in retrospect, was a good decision or not uh, in a little bit, but his buyout was very, very low, one of the lowest, I think, in the ACC at the time, which speaks to, I mean, I'm an attorney, and uh, I'm in a four-person firm, and I like to pay people who work for us well because you get back out what you put into it, right? Uh, And if you invest in your people, you can hopefully get a better result. But I'm curious, your thoughts on the coaches that you had. What was Goldsmith like as a head coach, and what was the transition from Goldsmith to Franks like for you guys? Yeah, I like Fred. Um, You know, I think when I think about the change, right, so when I think about 94 – the success they had, um, they had some incredible coordinators, right? Craig Bull, uh, as well as uh, Heimdinger, I believe. Right. As the offensive coordinator, um, they weren't there when I showed up in '85. 
I mean, Craig Wool got a pay raise to go to Nebraska. I can't recall the funding or at that point went straight to the NFL or went to a different college first. I think he I think he went to Denver. Yeah, yeah. So there you go, right? I mean, it's not so much the CEO or the head coach as much as it is the people that are underneath them. Those are the people that are really driving the results. Um, so, yeah, I mean, your question was about the coaches that I had. I had some good coaches. Uh, there were some good coaches at, at Duke. Um, again, it's when you don't have the when you're not spending the necessary money, you know, just like you're the people that work with you and for you, you know, they're, they're looking at the law firm across the street. That's going to pay them what they're getting paid plus 20% or some number beyond that. You know, they may love you as an employer. They may want to stay at Duke university as a coach, but they've also got a family to raise and, and, and they're still to look out for. So that's what happens at programs like Duke and I'm not thinking, you know, the, the schools around here in the back, right? Miami, Ohio, and other places are similar. Um, it's just what happens, right? So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the transition to Frank's, like, you know, honestly, for, for a lot of those in my class, I can't exactly remember. I think that was on the tail end of our careers. Uh, that was disappointing. For, for, for me and uh, the guys that came in for me because we felt like we had the pieces in place if we would have had some consistency in the coaching staff or we actually could have made a decent run and perhaps made a, made a bowl game. But then when you bring that new coach in, it, it comes with all new assistant coaches and there's that transition period. It invariably happens. So um, it, it, it becomes more about the younger guys than, than you know, at that time, I think we were five juniors or so. Um, I can't remember specifically, but um, yeah, it was uh, it was just sort of like, oh well, geez, we lost our we lost our chance. Um, that that's sort of how I remember it happening. Yeah, and I think to your point about the assistants, I was pulling this up while you were talking. You know, Goldsmith had, if you go back to his first season, he had a set of assistants. They were gone at the end of that season you had a new offensive and defensive coordinator coordinator come in for 95 and 96 you had a new offensive coordinator a new defensive coordinator bob trot stayed as the defensive coordinator for the rest of goldsmith's time there uh but then you know you had beckish uh for two seasons larry beckish and then les kenning came in his last season there that's a lot of turnover and it's hard to be successful when you have uncertainty at the at any position, but particularly at the two coordinator positions. Yeah, I mean, for four playing years, I had three different linebacker coaches, right? Uh, coach Mack, Coach Edwards, and then um, the last gentleman who was a Duke grad. Jeez, um, trying to recall his name. Um, that's a shame that I can't remember that in for two years. But uh, at any rate, yeah, so to your point, you know, it's, uh, you know, that, that's tough, right? When you've got, you know, three out of four years, different different perspectives on how to play the position, different coaching styles, different relationship styles, different communication styles, uh, et cetera. And athletes like routine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, for sure, yeah. I mean, yeah, they, you- like, they do like their routine. You can't get comfortable, and, and, you know, you go back and you look at a lot of the quarterbacks who don't make it in the NFL. One of the common traits is turnover in head coaches and turnover in coordinator and quarterback coach, right, position coach. So it's going to be hard to succeed. But as as part of doing a lot of these interviews, I've gone back and, and relived a lot of memories, pulled up games from YouTube uh, that uh, Ben was kind enough to post uh, during the uh, lockdowns uh, of the pandemic. And uh, I ordered Coach Goldsmith's book and read through that and looked at a lot of win-loss records. And to, to go back to the consistency issue, uh, it felt like during that time period, there was a lot of uncertainty at the quarterback position, Romine and Campbell were usually hurt in some respect, uh, and you were subbing them in and out. But man, that last season, looking back on it, you guys were four and seven, and 
I think maybe a total of eight points away from getting to six wins. I mean, you had a couple of close losses. You lost to NC State by a field goal, Vanderbilt by a field goal. So, yeah. you, you know, if you throw those, if you are able to turn those into wins, you're going to a bowl game. Do you think, I'm, I'm just curious, two things, two thoughts on this. At the time that Goldsmith was let go, there were kind of rumors about him being on the hot seat when, then, when that happened. What were your thoughts about that at the time, about a new coach coming in, trying to make some changes and maybe get to a bowl game? But then looking back on it, I'm curious if your thoughts have changed at all, and if so, how? In terms of when Franks came in or that last year with Brett? Uh, well, um, I guess primarily my question was was directed at um, his coach Goldsmith's dismissal. Uh, if you thought maybe at the time it was a good or a bad thing, and maybe looking sure. back on it now if it's changed at all. Yeah, my class was disappointed in that, I think, overall. Um for, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, right? We felt like we felt like we were really close, you know. And, and we had, you know, like you mentioned earlier, like that's the thing about bad programs. We find we can find we find ways to lose, and good programs find ways to win, right? And so many that we were just right there at the last stand, Heartbreak City. So we felt like, you know, and again, I, I'm speaking mostly from the defensive side. Like we felt like we were a pretty decent defensive unit, and we could keep ourselves in games and. We can stay competitive. Um, so then, when you know the university tried to make the switch, it was sort of a you know deflated feeling uh, for us um, because again we were kind of on the tail end of our college playing days, and for you know the trend that all the transition things that happened and whatnot, it just felt like perhaps you know that that was that was it for us um, in terms of having that opportunity moving forward. What were your, from the defensive side of the ball, what were your thoughts on Franks coming in? I mean, I, I know Coach Trot stayed uh, and was the defensive coordinator. Did Franks's uh, strategy, offensive game plan at all affect what you guys were doing? Well, I mean, the good thing is I love Coach Trot. We stayed, and, and Franks is an offensive guy, right? So we didn't want to see him a whole lot, which is totally fine. Um yeah, I mean, he kind of did his thing with the offense, and you, you really had some kind of like he was trying to, you know, he, he tried to bring in some of the the, the, the the fanciness and trickeryness of what his mentor Spurrier did at Florida, and it sort of didn't work. Um, yeah, you know, as a, as a football team, it's a big group, right? So you kind of worry about yourself and your defensive unit, and you. You know, it, it, it kind of runs like two separate businesses at a company. Um, so, he, again, he was kind of on that other business offense. And, yeah, he's the head coach. He'd get us together at the end, end of practice and say a couple things. But, you know, at that point, you're a 22-year-old kid. Like, you know, the stuff doesn't work as well as it would when you're 16 years old. Um, so it was good to have Trotted back. Love Coach Trot and, you know, some of the other coaches – so you had that, you did have some consistency there, um, but it was, it was sort of clear and apparent that the things that they were trying to do on the offensive side of the ball, right? If you remember, they were trying to run, gosh, they were trying to run the, the, the option and things like that with Bobby Campbell and Spencer Romine, like it just failed. Um, so that was obviously disappointing. Well, and the kind of, the way that I thought about it was he was trying to run Florida's offense without, Florida's players, and it clearly didn't work. Yeah, I mean, you got to know if you're a coach, you got to you got to you got to acclimate to to the personnel that you have, right? You can't try to put a square peg into a circle, and that's kind of what he was trying to do. Yeah, I, I think his offense was called the Airborne, but that was a yeah. little misleading given the results. What were your? And I'm not trying to knock the guy, but you know, um, I mean, it just. Looking on, looking back on it now, was he the wrong guy at the wrong time, or was there a situation where maybe if he'd come at a different time in his life, it would have worked out better for him? You know, perhaps. You know, I don't. I don't those those years are a little. I, I wouldn't want to speculate. Um, 
he's a nice guy, I'm sure. He, I know he's a nice guy. Like, I just, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't really want to go there. Like, perhaps there was a better way, but, I mean, it's, it all ties together, right, in terms of what the university wanted to do and what they wanted to spend and who they wanted to go get. I mean, perhaps you could have found kind of a younger, aspiring up-and-comer but you got to remember, like, they're not going to pay top dollar to get a top coach. So that's not an option, you know? And Spurrier is saying, hey, I, I heard, or you, we all heard, right? He probably had some, he could have had some influence in that hiring decision, you know? So, you know, maybe they're taking his word for it to some to some level. Um, and you roll the dice a little bit. It, it could have worked out. The other way, it didn't. Um, so, you know, who knows um, if he was the right guy at the right time. Clearly, hindsight, he wasn't. Um, but just as easily in sports, the story could have been written a different way. Right. Um, but again, right, so you're, you only have, the university's only committed to spend X. Like, it's hard to say... Hey, well, if you wouldn't have got this guy, it would have been better. Well, that guy wants more money than you're willing to pay. So you can't get that guy, you know? Well, you, you get what you pay for, that's for sure, uh, to simplify it, I guess. But I, I'm just curious, you know, when I interviewed Todd, uh, you know, he had some some things that he wanted to say uh, about uh, Coach Franks and uh, all that and what happened. And my takeaway from that and looking back at a lot of the people who were transferring out, uh, you know, Todd did, uh, Ben Watson did, uh, there were rumors, I think that, uh, the running back, uh, was, uh, uh, Douglas was thinking about leaving Richmond flowers left. I mean, those guys were good players. What was going on at the end of that 99 season, which was your last season there that was, was causing that, if that's something that, that you're able to comment on. You know, I think it's like, when things are going well, everybody's happy. You know, this is regardless of sports or what's happening in your life. When, when, when things are going bad in sports, in team sports, you know, the nastiness, the ugliness comes out. And we weren't winning games. People weren't happy. These are the things that happen when, you know, it's not unique to Duke. It's not, you know, it happens all the time, right? Um, it's just that we weren't winning football games. It was ugly. People were trying to, you know, protect themselves. People felt like they were getting slighted. They were probably getting slighted in different ways. And it just gets become an ugly situation. Um you know, with, with these sports programs, it's always ebbing and flowing. I mean, your goal is to keep it up at the top and, and, and try to maintain it, and that's really hard to do. I mean, you know, we've seen that, you know, recently with, with the Duke football program, but um, that's just, it was just a bad time. We were losing a lot of football games. People were frustrated. People, you put so much time and effort into the week, you know, to try to build up, to, to have success on Saturday, and then you don't, and you got to turn around the very next day and, and, and try to, you know, put shoes back on and, and try to do it again for the next Saturday. It's just, it just gets ugly. Um, it wasn't a good, it wasn't a good environment. People weren't happy. Um, probably, you know, like anything, you've got to go to the top and blame the top. I and mean, that's, that's if you want the top job, you got to, you got to understand it kind of comes with that. And, um, there were probably some situations that weren't handled the best way. Um, and that's why we saw some people say I'm out. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, again, I would go back. I said it a couple different ways. You know, for I'm speaking exclusively about my class, class of 95, I guess, class of 99, I guess. You know, what we felt like when, when Fred left, um, it was sort of like, it was done. Um, so that, that's where I'll, that's, that's my memory of it. Let me ask you uh, this. Uh, you mentioned uh, your girlfriend uh, watching you play football. I'm just curious. I mean, you're on TV pretty much every week. Uh, it's easy to see you guys, and it's easy to, to you know, 
come, you know, I guess it is a long drive from, from Cincinnati to Duke, but was that hard for her to, to watch you play at, at a top level of, uh, of college football? Well, that, uh, it, was. My mom didn't like watch the games. Yeah, <laughs> she's a parent, you know, and I, I don't necessarily blame her anymore. Um, being a parent and, and you know, seeing your kid out there throwing it on the line, and you know, seeing other kids get injured and everything else that goes along with it. But uh, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's not hard well, it's interesting you mentioned being a parent. I mean, I guess you know, for your mom's perspective, you were the one I remember laying the people out and delivering the hits on folks, you know, but, uh, it's still, you know, if you, if you'd been a quarterback back then, uh, that I'm sure would have increased the anxiety level because uh, they weren't protecting the quarterbacks like they do now. But it, it's funny that you mentioned being a parent and watching that my son plays lacrosse and soccer and he took a shoulder from a guy uh, on his last game uh, that knocked him. And I was, you know, where I grew up, there wasn't lacrosse, so I don't know the rules very well. But I, watching him play lacrosse at times can be really hard because you're seeing him get beat with a stick, you know, and you're worried about the stick coming into contact with the head and everything. It's just I have a lot of the same kind of thoughts you probably have as a, as a parent watching my son that, that you have watching your kids. Yeah, lacrosse is, uh, yeah, my son had a game last night, so he's a 14-year-old freshman playing on the varsity team at Elder, and it's, it's, it gets aggressive out there. Actually, I didn't realize that the head um, medical doctor for, for Elder, because we had like several ACL tears this year already, and he said he sees more ACL tears in lacrosse than any sport. Yeah. You know, it's that stuff, not so much. But the, the knees and, and the, the, the ACLs that we've seen this year, it's just incredible. Well, they're uh, turning on the, a dime a lot, you know, trying to yeah. cut back to the left and get to the goal and come around the side and sling it in there. It's tough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're, they're traveling at a high speed, making fast cuts. they got a stick in their hand, which throws a, you know, ever so slightly kind of throws your balance off a little bit. And if you're running without a stick, uh, yeah, there's, there's a number of things that can happen. So... Um, when you're, uh, yeah, I mean, lacrosse is, lacrosse is fun. I love it. Um, but yeah, as these kids get old and become young men, it's, it's visible. Well, uh, let me just ask you do you stay in touch with any of your old coaches or teammates from your time at Duke? Try to. So pre COVID, we would do, uh, we, would, we were actually, it was really picking up steam. We were doing a one game a year. Let's all try to rally and take down the Durham. Um, Hopefully that'll 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 pick back up once uh, once the gates reopen. But uh, yeah, I've had a few buddies that I stay in touch with. So I, I roomed with uh, Gannon Shepard, Lyle Bernheim, Mike Steinball. I keep up with those guys pretty well. Some others too, Austin Smithwick. But um, you know how it is, right? It's 25 years ago. We're all sort of spread out across the country, doing our own thing. So that 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 sometimes is, is better than than. And others in terms of the consistency but yeah you know those are those are you know your college years are some of the most memorable and impactful years of your life and uh, I have incredible memories of, of those years and it was you know net net it was an incredible experience even with all the losses on we took on the field so yeah those are those are valuable relationships try to as best I can as a guy keep them up but my wife would say I should do a better job. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's as you get older, because uh, we're probably right around the same age. Uh, I graduated high school in ninety nine or two thousand, so you would have been about four, 
or five years ahead of me. Yeah. You got kids and you're busy at work and, you know, I'm more or less kind of running my own practice. Uh, it's a lot to keep up with, but we try to do the, the one game a year ourselves, And of course we missed it this year because they didn't allow anybody in. And I'm looking forward to getting back down there now that I'm, I'm fully vaccinated. And, you know, I don't know. I'll tell you what I have learned from doing these interviews is that, and you saw it with the basketball program too. So I'm, I'm this last football season was brutal, right? But I think Duke, Duke took COVID a lot more seriously than a lot of schools. And I think that that has a lot to do with it. That outbreak at the end of the season on the basketball team and that you've seen with the fraternities is probably alarming to the administration. I think they're going to take it very seriously. I wouldn't, if I had to guess, and this is pure speculation, it's inadmissible in any court of law, obviously, because it's pure speculation. But my guess is going to be that it, it, they'll limit the number of people who can come in and they're going to require you to show proof of um, of vaccination or take some other efforts to protect yeah. yourself. I, I, I think they're probably going to require you to bring your vaccine card with you and show it. That's my guess. Yeah. Well, it's a private institution. I think they think theoretically have that right you know right um, so well that's good i mean i, I would I, I, I would have loved to be down there for lacrosse games this spring uh obviously i don't think there are anybody in for those but yeah maybe by the fall can get down there we, we we look forward to that my kids look forward to that trip every year it's a great time so well and it's a it's a much better game day experience now than what it used to be i mean the seats are more comfortable uh, yeah. the concessions are better, uh, everything about it has improved. And I think, you know, and, and I mean, look, you know, you and I have talked a lot for about an hour about, you know, a lot of losses and difficult times, but, you know, I think it, you guys were kind of the sacrificial lambs to make the program realize what it needed to do to get to a point where they can win an ACC coastal, right. Where they can go to four straight bowl games, where they can go play in the peach bowl. And that's what I'm going to call it. I'll never not call it that, but you know, I, I, you know, you guys were 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 kind of thrown to the slaughter. But without that experience, I don't think that we get to a point where we hire a guy like Cutcliffe, right? Yeah. And yeah. we don't upgrade the programs, and we don't have that great indoor facility, right? I mean, it's you know it. It, it, it's painful when you go through it, but sometimes you look back on those painful memories and you learn a lot. I mean, I remember, you know, in my own life, there was a time where I was trying to manage a big issue at uh, at my old firm uh, that was – to try to explain all that would take forever, so I'm not going to. But it was a big issue that I, as an associate attorney, not even a partner, was tasked to manage that I shouldn't have been tasked to manage, and I learned from that. That was a brutal two years of my life. You can ask my wife about it. But my my takeaway from that was you have to be in control of your own practice and you've got to be in control of what you do every day. And when you're able to, you know, have that control, things get a lot better. So, yeah, it was a brutal two years, but it helped me in the long run. So that that's, that's how I think about the post-Spurrier era up until Cutcliffe is – particularly the Franks and Roof years, is those were necessary to get the program to where it is today. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, I mean, God bless, you know, whoever made the decision to hire uh, Coach Cutcliffe, right? And uh, he's been an incredible leader. You know, it, it is interesting. You know, I talked a lot about, you know, the assistant coaches earlier. But, you know, you do have to have a, a guy in charge – uh, the face of the organization, and uh, he's been an incredible one, and uh, we're all lucky to, to have him for as long as we have. Uh, I'm hopeful that they can, like you said, this last year, unfortunately, it was just it was almost like a throwaway year. I feel throwaway year. I feel bad to say that for the for the players and the work they put in because I know they work hard. Um, but yeah, it was just a weird time, and hopefully they can get back on track. I'm excited to see it. Um, but, yeah, you're probably right. You know, it was some down, down years. And, uh, you know, perhaps that was what led to those that make those big decisions saying enough's enough. But, you know, the, the university and the alumni deserve better than what we're providing 
them on Saturday afternoons, and uh, they make that switch. Well, tell us what your favorite moment at Duke uh, is. Favorite moment at Duke? Wow, on the field or off the field? Either one, both, whatever you want to say. <laughs> My memory's a little fuzzy now. you got to remember, I probably lived with a concussion for four years. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about that, but... That. You can laugh, no, but that's, it was a, little, a, a much different game back then, uh, and I played it a little differently than you're allowed to play it today. Um, man, I just, you know, my memories are just cheese on peas. I mean, it, it, it ranges, I mean, from the, from at the time when we were miserable things, which was being in that locker room at 6 a.m., eating frozen bagels and frozen bananas to get on the field or out on the training fields at 6.30, uh, the time in the film rooms where you're just nodding off, like, so exhausted, just watching the repetitive play after play uh, to the, the game days on Saturday. And there's no other feeling uh, of coming out of a tunnel, um, mostly away games because our environment wasn't great back then. But, you know, coming out of a tunnel, for example, at Florida State and just the airs on your arms standing up, like there's – you can't you can't recreate that. People try to recreate it uh, sometimes artificially, but the adrenaline running into your body and, and getting yourself up to that to that heightened sort of sense. I mean, it's just it's just you, it's 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 undescribable. If you've not if you've not if you've not been in that situation, you don't know how to even understand it. And to be out of that field and you know, I remember the big hits, right? Um, playing against incredible players, like it's all wrapped up into one memory. You know, uh, and the older you get, it's just kind of like you know the the, the the lines get a little fuzzier. Um, but it's all one big memory, and that, like I said earlier, it's all good. You know, um, some heartbreaks, some disappointments. You know the, the beating, the getting beat up, but uh, you know that's 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 what I remember my experience and the friendships. I talked about that earlier. Like, you know, you go through something like that with guys, it's uh, it builds an incredible bond, a lifetime bond that you know you, you might not see each other for decades, and you, you see each other for the first time in the decades, and it's like you just pick right up where you left off. So. Uh, great, great years of, of our lives in college, and you know, great experience to be able to play, you know, Division One football in a, in, a, in a top conference against great players. Um, those are the things I remember. Well, that's that's great, and you know, I appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and do this interview uh, today, and I appreciate your time at Duke. You were. You were a fun player to watch. You, you got, you guys. You know, like you said, uh, you you would give us hope uh, for about uh, three quarters, and then being a little yeah. bit, but being a little bit older now, I can see and appreciate things that I didn't appreciate when I was in high school watching you guys, right? And so when I was watching some of these old games, I could start to see like, oh, here's where the problem's going to come in. And I think your point's right. It was just, you know. It wasn't anything that necessarily you guys were doing wrong. It was just the circumstances that you had of of depth and commitment from yeah. the athletic department. But you guys, I mean, I never felt like you guys quit or gave up. I always felt like you guys, particularly on the defense, brought everything you had every play, and you guys were a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, no, I, yeah, and I 100% agree with that. You know, we all had too, too much – self-pride to ever that's the crazy thing like i think back on it like we would walk into a saturday afternoon playing a top five for a state team and we thought we were gonna win like we ruin like no as i'm as i'm in my mid-40s like i probably wouldn't think the same thing well you're 20 18 20 years old that's the way you think um so yeah we, we never quit and that so, that was when florida state was still florida state uh, uh, yeah peter warwick you know, uh, we're done, you know, like Chris Winkie, Philip Seymour's and those defensive ends that were like in the nastiest defensive ends in the country, you know, like, yeah, they were, they were, they were it back then. 
they were the real deal. And, and you guys, you know, you, you guys went out there every week, uh, despite everything that you guys went through and started rebuilding that program back. And I wish you guys had gotten one more year under Goldsmith to see if you could have gotten back to a bowl. Cause after that winless year, there was, there was, a, there were a lot of signs of life that were coming back and it was unfortunate that it got cut short, but, um, yeah. you know, I, again, I appreciate all you did at Duke. I, I thank you for coming on. Um, hold on just for a second while I do this outro uh, here. Uh, but we just want to say thank you uh, to Ryan Stallmeyer for taking time on a Saturday uh, to come on the podcast and do this interview. As I said earlier, you can listen to us on Google Podcasts, on Spotify, on Anchor, almost anywhere you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Duke FB Coverage. Uh, a little tease as we go out, we have some more interviews that we have planned and locked down. I think they are going to be exciting and you will enjoy them. And like I said, if you have any questions, any comments, if you're associated with the program in any way and you want to come on and do an interview, you know how to get in touch with us. Send us a message on Twitter. My DMs are open. Send us an email, bullcitycoordinators at gmail.com. We'll be back next time with more interviews and we look forward to putting on as much content as we can.